Welcome to the Western Revolution Show, a show for men and the people who love them. Where we, where we, just, I can't even, I, I can't even see. This is my people. You know what I'm saying? We're going to go back and rewind. Welcome to the Western Revolution Show, a show for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can find and embrace the healthiest versions of yourself. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corpru. Yo, let me let me start this week off, like, to throw some shade. Like, every time I am on Rachel Graham's show after my, after my show, the mics sound nice. Check one. But right now, my mic is horrible. What's up with that, Jazz? You know what I'm saying? What's up with that? It's all in your mind, bro. See, you sound smooth. Got your very white voice <laughs> it's on. It's all in your mind, bro. Yeah. Bro, what it is is you be too fidgety over there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You want to grab the mic and push it to the left and push it to the right, moving it out the way. Come on, man. You know, I I, I want to have the sweet, melodious song. Sounds that everyone gets to hear after 9 p.m. You sound crystal clear right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Welcome to the show, everybody. Everybody's watching on Facebook Live. Welcome to my show. As you can see, well, you can't see, but the man next to me is Will Snowden. We're going to get into the juror project and what that means today. But think about this. This is the the thought I want to put in your head, everybody. You get that letter in the mail, you know. Unless you're uh, Dr. Derek Greenfield, who does not actually have an address. Uh, actually, his address is 202117 Jafreyas Avenue. But uh, you get that letter in the mail, and it says that you've got jury duty. You know, that dreaded letter. Right, Will? It's not dreaded. It uh, shouldn't be. It shouldn't be that dreaded letter. But most people tend to dread when they get that they, letter they because they've got to sit. You know, they think it's a waste of time. I've got to sit in court. I don't know if I'm going to get it called. It is a waste of my time. It's taking me away from my job, you know. And so what we do is to try to find a way out of jury duty. Right. You know, anyway, let me get a letter from my job, something that says, you know what, I'm not going to have to go. But what we're going to talk about is that maybe you should not be trying to find ways to get out of jury duty. Mm-hmm. You may need to find ways to get into jury duty because what we're seeing, particularly here in Louisiana and all across the country, is that many people are being locked up because we don't have fair representation. We don't have fair representation on juries. So to join me today to discuss this topic and things that are occurring around the country with boys and men of color, I've got my man, Will Snowden, executive director of the Juror Project. Will, what's happening with you, brother? What's going on? How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. And look, for everyone who knows, y'all are about to get an, uh, an, an is the word oratory, you know, I mean, you are probably one of the well, most well-spoken people that I know. And that's hard for me that. to say as, you know, a, a black man saying that to another yeah. black man. Well, but I, I, I grace, gracefully accept that comment. No, I remember hearing you speak, and shout out to the folks at Propeller, as you were talking about the Jura Project. And I was encapsulated by the story, brother. But before mm. we get into that, let me ask our signature question. What's your revolution, Will? My revolution is the Juror Project, which is my attempt not to be complicit in a criminal justice system that is founded upon the bedrock of white supremacy. Mm. That's it. That's that. That's that's too simple for them, man. You got you got to go in a little bit more. Well, the bedrock of the bedrock of white supremacy is our is our justice system. When we think about um, how our criminal justice system has evolved to 
lock up black folks mm -hmm. from, you know, a derivative of, of – we go to Angola. We know Angola is Louisiana State Penitentiary. It's a prison plantation. So, you know, there there has been the successful transition from slavery to criminal justice yeah. to constantly keeping people of color in chains. Right. And when we think about the purpose of our criminal justice system, a lot of us have this fairy tale idea of fairness, of equity. Mm. But when you walk into a courtroom and you see the majority of the people are people of color, they're in orange and they're in chains, you know that something else is going on. Right. Right. And and the reason why I said is it, that was too simple, because I know for them, that was the easy answer for some people who are listening. Oh, yeah, that 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 answer is too easy. And we know that it is a very complex right. and the complexities that go along with our justice system. Like you said, just saying it's the bedrock lets them off the hook. Right. Yeah. And right. no doubt. So I appreciate that. Well, but before we get into this a little bit more, I want to know who Will Snowden is. You know, right. um, and sometimes I ask. What's behind your name, William? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, tell me a little bit about that. So William is uh, actually a German name, Wilhelm, mm. which uh, means desire to protect. <laughs> and you know, I know when my parents named me William, they didn't think I would become a public defender. But uh, my dad's name is Billy Ray. Okay, he's from El Dorado, Arkansas. Gotcha. His mother is from Randolph, Louisiana, and my mom. Didn't want to name me as Billy Ray as a junior because I was a little <laughs> bit too southern for her. Right. <laughs> She's from uh, Corning, Iowa. And I think the compromise was to name me William. And I am from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I have uh, I come from a blended background. My mm -hmm. dad is black. My mom is white. And much of who I am today is a product of my awesome upbringing and being exposed to um, two different unique cultures in this country right? and being able to blend those experiences together along with the lessons that I've learned from my parents and my sisters and my family entirely has given me a tremendous amount of perspective on how I want to navigate this criminal justice system and the advocacy that I do as well as just navigating life in general. Right. I love that. And I think the stories behind our names dictate so much. You know, when we hear, interestingly enough, German. Mm-hmm. Charles is the French version of Carl. Oh, okay. Carl is Germanic. Uh, it means manly. Mm. My life has been about, yeah. you know, doing work for men and boys. And so it's very interesting how our names, and I love that, how our names can drive mm -hmm. where we go in life. It's mm -hmm. very, very interesting. And I, I love that. To protect. Yeah, desire to protect. The desire to protect. And, it, and that's what you do. Right. That is what you do. You know, as, as I think about this, you know, going forward and preparing for the show, I was like, why is this your revolution? Why mm -hmm. is jury, you know, serving on a jury, Will Snowden's revolution? So I came to Louisiana in 2012, and I was a law clerk at the Orleans Public Defender's Office. And after my exposure to the broken criminal justice system here, I knew that this is where I wanted to fight. I knew I wanted to be a public defender going into law school, and I chose to be a public defender in Louisiana because it's the prison capital of the world. You know, they're locking up too many black people. Right. And in my experiences as a public defender, I started to pay attention into how this system was working. And then I started to pay attention into – what were the efforts by other actors in the system to try to improve it, to try to reform it, to try to make a difference? 
And for decades, we have been advocating for policy change in the state legislature. We have been filing post-conviction relief when, when, when clients have been convicted and taking appeals. And what I noticed is a very powerful body in that courtroom was not being discussed. Right, right. And what was very frustrating to me was going to trial and having New Orleanians come in and file in for jury selection and be part of the jury panel for what they call voir dire, which is the jury selection process between the attorneys and the potential jurors, and seeing what I believe are, you know, quality New Orleanians that represent the peer base group of people that I represent, mm-hmm. seeing those folks getting kicked off the jury. And so there would be questions that would, you know, what would be asked, um, you know, some pro- say a prosecutor would say, you know, this individual is charged with possessing two crack rocks. If I prove my case beyond a reasonable doubt, are you able to vote guilty? And there was this, this, this elderly black man who said, no, I wouldn't because I don't believe drug addicts belong in prison. Wow. Now, wow. I agree with that 100%. Right. And there were other people on that jury that also agreed with that. And when they said that they could not vote guilty because they didn't believe in the punishment, they got kicked off the jury. Wow. But when we think about a right to a jury of your peers, that's that's our peer. That's our peer. So why is his mindset not allowed mm. to be in that deliberation room? Right. And so that was frustrating to me because when he said that, you know, there were other people that agreed. And so they got removed. Or when some prosecutors would ask a question, how many of us have had a bad experience with New Orleans Police Department? <laughs> and inevitably, majority of black folks raise their hand. They, they, they talk about their bad experiences, and then they get kicked off. At the end of the day, I was able to see that there's a system in place that is removing diversity from our jury panels. And it's not just diversity of race. It's also diversity of thought, diversity of background, diversity in every sense of the word. And I saw that this was a problem as it relates to the fairness of our trials. And so I thought, how could I make this arena fair? And I couldn't have conversations in the actual jury selection process. So I said, let me try to have some conversations with folks outside the courtroom. Because those 12 individuals or six individuals, depending on the type of case, literally have the most power in the room when you're going to trial. Right. Because they have within their their grips, their, uh, their grips to decide if someone's going to go to prison or not. And we have a system, we have a society that doesn't talk about jury duty. We have a society that promotes this loathing of jury duty, that it is this burden, right? And people don't really know how to be good jurors, right? When I was in school, I didn't learn about jury duty. No, not at all. And so now we have people that are coming into this courtroom for the very first time, and they have this tremendous amount of responsibility, but they never had a conversation about it. That's a very high-pressure system. And so in creating the juror project, I wanted to go have conversations about what jury duty actually is, the importance and power that diversity can have in that deliberation room, and why communities should be seizing this power to be part of the conversation on who we think belongs in prison and who doesn't. Right, right. You're listening to the What's Your Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corporu, here with my esteemed guest, Will Snowden, New Orleans public defender and also executive director of the juror project, and really unpacking the jury project of the juror project and the jury process and why it's important. There are a couple mm-hmm. things that you just said in um, your last couple of statements. How to be a good juror 
actually stood out, but also being uh, excluded from juries based on thought. Yeah. Right. And and interesting how policies, you know, how the policies will drive, you know, the behaviors of prosecutors mm-hmm. without any any consideration for this thought. And as you say, we have been criminalizing you know, criminalizing drug use in the black community for decades, yep. right? And so, and now we're seeing this shift yep. in not in black communities, however, yep. we're seeing this shift, particularly with meth and heroin, yep. where this move from criminalizing the behavior to now let's figure out how to rehab and, mm-hmm. and do that type of work. Mm-hmm. And so, jury jury employment, I'll put it in that terms, is so critical. Right. But how do you how do you become a good juror? And then how do you offset the policies that are in place to exclude people who have a variance in thought? So to be a good juror, I think you need to walk in there with all the experiences that you've had in your life and make sure that those experiences don't uh, get thrown away and, and think that they don't matter because they do. And to be a good juror, you actually are going to walk in with an open mind, that you're actually going to listen to what the prosecutor's are putting forward for their case, that you're going to listen to the testimony of the police officers, and that you're going to listen to the case as it put is put on by the defense if they put on a case, and really have a commitment to seeing everything that's getting put forward and, and deciding at the end of seeing all that evidence, having the willingness to take everything in, decide if you think that the prosecution has proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt. To have conversations on whether or not this is the type of behavior we need to be criminalizing or this is the type of behavior that we need to be sending to prison for X amount of years. Right. Because you know, one thing that people don't like me talking about is a, is a notion of jury nullification. And when I talk about jury nullification, for whatever reason, people get all nervous and, and they get all weary about it. And jury nullification is a, is a constitutional premise. It is a tool that was created to serve as a check on the government. And what it means is – if you are sitting on a jury and say somebody is charged with possession of marijuana and you do not believe that uh, somebody who is charged with a nickel bag of weed deserves to go to prison, you can vote not guilty despite them being factually guilty. And that is such a concern for people because right. they're like, y- you want me to not follow the rules? You want me to not follow the law? We can talk about like who wrote these laws, right? <laughs> and we talk about policy change and, it, and the policy makers. Right. And so I think when we – jury notification is supposed to be a check on the government from abusing its power. One of my first cases as a public defender, client was charged with possession of heroin. He had um, a syringe with heroin in it. If we were to go to trial and lose, his automatic sentence, his mandatory sentence would be life in prison. For syringe. For syringe. Not for possession with intent to distribute, not for actual distribution, but for being a heroin addict on his third strike. Are you kidding me? I am not. And so if you think that sending a heroin addict to prison for the rest of their life is an abuse of power, you can vote not guilty. Wow. And that's not something that people like to talk about, but it's important that we understand we have power in condoning who we think should be sent to prison and and who shouldn't. Because at the end of the day, this is our criminal justice system. It is our tax dollars that are paying to house these people, that is paying to prosecute these people, that's paying to defend these people. And we need to be focused on things and policies that are keeping us safe, not on policies that are keeping other people rich. Right, and that's interesting because I have not heard of jury nullification before. Yep. And we talk about what we don't oh, know. Oh, you have. Huh? You have. So when uh, some white folks back <laughs> in the day 
were charged with murdering a black person. Right. We heard about jewelry nullification. Yeah. Yes. So it's not a it's not a new concept. Like we've seen it around. You know, people just don't actually talk about it in that way. But when you're wondering how you know some of these people who were charged with lynching black folks, how they actually got off, how that all white jury. Right. You know, that's jury nullification. That's jury nullification. And if you've been listening to uh, Real Talk with Rachel, she's been having some uh, interesting dialogue, particularly last week around. Uh, the conceptions of lynching and how people have been up, uproaring, uh, particularly about uh, Brian Stevenson's work in mm-hmm. uh, the lynching museum that uh, he's come about and, right. and why. And, and people are not talking about, you know, other lynchings. Uh, but it was very, very interesting, you know, the history around that. And as you said, the Jewish nullification, how many people got off, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm got off for killing other people. Right. But when we talk about this in the terms of black folks and black men, mm-hmm. it becomes, oh, we've, we've got to follow the letter of the law. Yep. That's a very interesting the thing. Standard. The, the, the double standard. The double standard, the privileges we talk about so much. And my good friend, uh, Dr. Greenfield, who is here spending some time with me, knows about you know talking about privilege and bias so well. Please make sure you, uh, you uh, follow his work. Professor Derek Greenfield. Let's talk about this for one second um, and unpack it a little bit more because when you drop down to Louisiana, mm-hmm. we are unique mm. in a sense mm-hmm. because you don't have to have a unanimous verdict to send someone someone away. No, you don't. You know, and so tell me a little bit about the history of the non-unanimous mm-hmm. jury vote here in Louisiana. Yeah. And that's you know when Louisiana and New Orleans broadcast and advertise its tourism and saying to come and visit, they don't say how you don't have the same rights in your home state when you come to Louisiana. And if you are visiting from Texas, from Arkansas, from Mississippi, from anywhere, from New York, from any state with the exception of Oregon, when you come here and you're accused of a crime, the criminal justice system has a lesser burden placed upon the prosecutors. They don't have to prove their case beyond all reasonable doubt. They have to prove their case beyond all but two doubts. So if there are two people on the 12-person jury that think a person is not guilty, and there are 10 people that think the person is guilty, that person is still going to prison. And that is a product of the Louisiana Constitutional Convention from 1898. Right. There were 138 white delegates who essentially were trying to figure out what they were going to do with this relatively new freed slave population, right? They know that in Louisiana, slavery was driving the economy. Lots of land, lots of slaves, lots of money. And when the 13th Amendment essentially took that labor force away with the exception of criminal punishment, they didn't know how they were still going to work on this land. And they created non-unanimous jury verdicts uh, for two reasons. One, to make it easier to convict black folks to be part of the convict leasing system. And two, to nullify the black vote. So in 1898, there were about 100,000 eligible black voters, and they knew that with the right to vote comes the right to serve on a jury. Right. So the black folks were able to get on the jury. The 138 white delegates didn't want those black votes to count. Right. So at that time, the threshold was nine to three. Nine people had to vote guilty. Three people had to vote not guilty. Or, I mean, that was the threshold. You only right. had exactly. to vote nine. And I will constantly remind folks that this is a policy – Uh, based out of racism, is a vestige of Jim Crow. And when we look at Thomas Sims' words, we look at the transcript from that constitutional convention, he specifically says the purpose of this convention is to promote the supremacy of the white race. A product of that convention are non-unanimous jury verdicts. So using his words alone, 
we know that was a white supremacist convention. Right. Right. And a product of that white supremacist convention were nine unanimous jury verdicts. And here we are, 2018. 18, and we still and have we that. still have a product of that white supremacist convention in our criminal justice system. Right. And I think back post-Reconstruction um, and the criminalization of anything, mm-hmm. of anything mm-hmm. to ensure the population, the working population, the slave population was still – What's the word that I want to say? Was still handled or shackled. That's the word yeah. that I want. Still shackled. And so now you have an opportunity, nine to three, right? Mm-hmm. You're taking away the right to vote because once you're convicted, that right to vote is gone, yep. right? Yep. You're also continuing to enslave. So it was just this system, as we talk about the systemic barriers, mm-hmm. put in place mm-hmm. to continue to hamper and hinder freed slaves. And we see that this if we look at it historically, it has been carried down since 2018. Like you said, now it's 10 to 2. It changed in 1974, but right. still the same. One premise. vote. Right. Right. And then now we're still attempting to exclude people of color from juries that may have a different set of thoughts. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, it's important to note that uh, – well, we need to talk about some data. Yeah, no right? doubt. And Go so ahead. I just, I just wanted to, to bring up some numbers. Uh, you know, the advocate issued a tremendous report. Um, relating to the impact that non-unanimous verdicts have had on the African-American community. Because particularly, I think in 2015, maybe 16, um, the Orleans Public Defender's Office filed a case in front of Judge Hunter, specifically challenging the constitutionality of non-unanimous verdicts. And Judge Hunter essentially said, I see what you're saying and I understand your argument, but you need to show me data that there's actually a disparate impact against this population. That's what I want to hear. And so what what uh, the advocate did is they looked at nine of the ten most, um, I guess, trial uh, – ten of the, nine of the – nine parishes that go to trial the most in, in Louisiana. So it's Ascension Parish, Caddo Parish, uh, Calcasieu, East Baton Rouge, Jefferson, Orleans – uh, St. Tammany, Terrebonne. And so they looked at what the black population was and then what the population of the actual juries would be with that representation. And the the greatest divide, the greatest gap, you know, in Ascension Parish, we have 35% reduction between the number of eligible black jurors and the people actually making it on the jury. In Caddo Parish, we have a 27% reduction. East Baton Rouge, 33% reduction. And so we're talking about a whole source of, jur- of, of jurors who are people's peers are not making it onto the jury. So when you say reduction, just to make sure that yeah. everyone – what do you mean by that? So let's say there are 100 eligible jurors. Mm-hmm. Um, only 77 of them are actually being summoned to be on juries. Right. So we, as a juror project, we look at the practices that are used to summon jurors in the first place. In the entire state of Louisiana, the standard practice is to use voter registration records and DMV records. What is important to know is that these two lists have absolutely nothing to do with your qualifications to serve on a jury. So to qualify to be on a jury, you have to be 18, be a a resident of that parish, I think it may be for a year, maybe a little less. And not have any convictions. No convictions and understand English. Um, So then we have to ask ourselves, why are we using voter registration as a list of summon jurors? Why are we using DMV when – those had, have anything to do with the requirements to be able to serve on a jury or the qualifications. And so we challenge that the juror project likes to challenge that in saying that these lists have a class element to them, right? Not everybody has – you don't have to register to vote. 
That has nothing to do with your capability of being to serve on a jury. Right. And if you don't have enough money and you can't afford a car, you're not going to have a driver's license. Exactly. So there are class elements that are particularly mm-hmm. woven into the DMV records that we struggle with as an organization because you are essentially creating a system that is only targeting certain people of a certain class. Right. And that's not our peers. And so – we challenge the way that people are being summoned for jury duty. We have data that shows that there's the lack of actual representation of eligible jurors. Um, but then it also demonstrates that 40 percent of the people that were convicted – I'm sorry, let me pull up the number. Um, there's a tremendous amount of people that have been convicted via non-unanimous jury verdicts. Um, and specifically, 11 people so far have been exonerated that were originally convicted by non-unanimous verdicts. So what that means is when that person originally went to trial – there was either one person that voted not guilty or two people that voted not guilty, and that person still went to prison. And after decades of, of investigation wow. and research right. and advocacy by the Innocence Project, it proved that that person actually was innocent. So that means that one juror or that two juror actually got it right. But since we have this system in this state, we are not allowing individual jurors that have not been convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that this person's guilt, that that person does not belong in prison, we no longer have that safety net that the jury is supposed to be. So the, the, the question that, or the pushback would be, well, aren't these verdicts, you know, there were only 11 people who were exonerated. Mm-hmm. That means everybody else, mm-hmm. right, was convicted correctly, right? That's, that, that can be an argument, mm-hmm. sure. Well, the, the response is we should have a system that does not allow, that does not promote a policy that allows any innocent person to be sent to prison. Exactly. And I would say even if there was one person, that's not enough. I mean, that, that's much more than enough. It's more than enough. Because we should be able to have faith in our criminal justice system. We as a state have been the prison capital of the world for the longest time. Exactly. We've also been the exoneration capital of the world. What that means <laughs> is that our juries know that. are getting it wrong more than anywhere else. So what's unique about our jury system? One of the things that's unique is non-unanimous jury verdicts. Wow. So when wow. are we going to get with it in understanding that all other 48 states require unanimous verdicts? The federal government requires unanimous verdicts. Louisiana's unanimous, non-unanimous verdicts are rooted in racism. It's a vestige of Jim Crow. Oregon's is rooted in anti-Semitism. Both are rooted in hate, and neither belong in our criminal justice right, system. No doubt. You've been listening to the executive director of the Jury Project, Will Snowden dissect the reasons why we need to pay more attention to jury selection. We can dig more into Will and his project and his revolution on the other side. This is the What's Your Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corcoran. It's just another day. But at Metro Disposal, this is our day. For more than 25 years, Metro Disposal has been a vital resource for waste management in our community. With state-of-the-art equipment and technology, we are committed to providing a cleaner, safer, healthier environment. This is our community. This is Metro Disposal. 
I definitely have an Instagram foodie thing, but the low-light camera on my new Samsung Galaxy S9 from AT&T is getting me a whole new world of likes and shares. Baskets of bread by candlelight, colorful fruit plates in full sun, even a dimly lit Cobb salad was recently hailed as a masterpiece. Come in now and ask how to get half off the new Samsung Galaxy S9 from AT&T. AT&T, more for your thing. That's our thing. Limited time only. See store for details or att.com slash Samsung 50. The dual aperture supports F15 mode and F24 mode. Dual aperture is installed on the rear camera. There's freedom at Liberty Bank. At Liberty Bank, you can now open a checking account online and gain immediate access to our many services. It's easy for you to go and keep track of your account at www.libertybank.net. You can even apply for loans or services on the go. Banking at Liberty, now 24 hours a day, seven days a week at www.libertybank.net. Bank at Liberty, there's freedom here. And don't forget to use promo code WBOK. On behalf of Mr. Chill's Hot Dogs and Sweet Pastries, you are cordially invited to a WBOK personality meet and greet fundraiser. And it's this Saturday from 3 to 6 p.m. at 575 South Carrollton Avenue. Join the staff of WBOK as we uplift our community by supporting small black businesses. Come out and put a face with the voice as all of the WBOK personalities will be on hand this Saturday from 3 to 6 p.m. For more information, make sure to visit us at WBOK1230AM.com. And you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'll see you this Saturday at Mr. Chill's Hot Dogs and Pastries at 575 South Carrollton Avenue. Looking for a cool excursion? Explore, enjoy, and feel the ancestors on the popular Black Heritage and Jazz Tour of New Orleans. Hear about the world-famous jazz legends. The truth ain't nothing nice. We start at the beginning, Congo Square. Why is it considered sacred ground and birthplace of jazz? Who started the transatlantic slave trade, resistance, and revolts? Did you know Louis Armstrong was banned from playing in New Orleans for almost a decade? Come walk through Armstrong Park and Congo Square. Get on the cool, air-conditioned luxury bus. Black Indians, Mardi Gras Indians, stories told by Big Chief David Montana. Book your Black Heritage and Jazz Tour today by calling 504-457-9439. That's 504-457-9439. Or visit us on the web at www allaboutdat.com make your reservation today WBOK 12:30 a.m. the people's station Welcome back to the Western Revolution Show, the show for men and the people who love them. We have been talking to my man, Will Snowden, CEO, executive director of the Jewel Project. He just dropped. If you missed the last segment, he just dropped. Like, as Derek Greenfield just said, that's how a kappa drops the mic. <laughs> it's the only way they can drop the mic on my radio show. <laughs> um so let's get back into it with Will. Let me let's let's move this conversation into a little, a little bit broader. Okay. Um, 
Our criminal justice seems to be skewed towards heavily arresting and incarcerating men of color. Mm -hmm. Is this a policy issue? Is this a programming issue? Is this a population issue? What is it? All of the above, right? So there is a false narrative in this country that is being told um, about criminality and the uh, criminality being associated with black folks. And what's frustrating to me is when we think about how we are represented in the media and in stories and as, as characters and curriculum, whatever it might be, there is always a negative association with blackness, mm. right? And I think, you know, uh, where was I reading this? I don't remember. But if you look up black in the dictionary, all the synonyms are negative. Negative. If you look up white in the dictionary, all the synonyms are positive, pure, clean, things like that. And what's frustrating is that this association, this negative association with black folks is being planted in our minds um, from the days that we learn how to read. Right. right. And there is nothing unique about a black person's DNA, their genetic makeup, their their spirit, their mind, their body that makes them more prone to criminality than any other and, individual. But we, we, we are made to think that. Because that's an easy thing to sell. Right. Let me ask you this question, Will, because I, I keep thinking about it. We are two light-skinned black men, mm -hmm. right? I was called high yellow today. <laughs> <laughs> called high yellow. But he, here's the thing. Do we experience the criminal justice system similarly to our dark-skinned brothers? No. Why is that? And that's why I wanted to ask the question. Yeah, so if we uh, – we can look at research, and there's a, a tremendous amount of research around implicit biases. And there is a demonstrated majority of Americans have an implicit bias against darker-skinned African Americans in this country, um, particularly stereotypical Afrocentric features can trigger these biases such as darker skin, mm -hmm. such as broader nose, fuller lips, um, the uh, hairstyle, like if you have a, a, your hair in locks. These types of features have been demonstrated uh, to be associated with biases as it relates for particularly Afri uh, darker-skinned African-Americans. Right. So knowing that association and how we're depicted in the media, these biases have been created that when we are seeing darker-skinned African-Americans, there are schemas in our mind that are being activated associating these individuals with criminality. Now, you, it doesn't mean – You are you know, schemas for the, the non-psychology people. Yeah. Um, so – a schema, in my understanding, is, is, is essentially a neurological pathway that's been developed in your brain to understand the utility or representation or, or uh, yeah, utility of a particular object. Exactly. So if you walk into a room and you see a chair, schema's activated that a exactly. chair or something. That mental folder. On. Exactly. Exactly. And so these mental folders have been created associating blacks with criminality, and particularly when we look at an executive summary by Perception Institute, which is a research consortium studying the mind sciences of racial anxiety, stereotype threat, and implicit bias. In this exec executive summary titled uh, tra "Perception: Transforming the Perception of Black Men and Boys, they talk about how black men and boys are majority of the time represented in the media by either being praised for their athleticism, mm -hmm. praised for their entertainment value, or scorned for their criminality. Right. And so we talk about these schemas or these folders that are being developed within our minds associating black folks with these three things. So if you come into a, uh, a courtroom and you're sitting on a jury and you see this young black man sitting at the defense table, schemas are being activated. And, you, and your mind is going through 
these rotations and saying, well, the schema of athleticism doesn't apply because he's not wearing a jersey. The schema of entertainment doesn't apply because he's not holding an instrument or singing or whatever. So then we land on the schema of criminality. And that might even actually be the very first one because it's at the context of the courtroom. So when we think about how these implicit biases are impacting our criminal justice system, we all have implicit biases. Everyone. Wake up every day. Everybody has We them. all have implicit biases. It's not something that you can wash off in the shower. Right? <laughs> I love that analogy. Yes. But we as responsible citizens need to know what our implicit biases are. So I encourage everyone that's listening and paying attention on Facebook Live, you have to take the implicit association test. Right, exactly. You have to be able to identify what your biases are. Right. Harvard, just so everybody knows, it's a Harvard study. Um, millions of people actually have taken the implicit association test. Yeah. Uh, I've actually taken it six times myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, skewed, right, I mean, not skewed, but really was right down the middle, not right down the middle, mm-hmm. uh, not having any biases, but then took it. Uh, probably two or three months ago mm-hmm. and actually was skewed more towards my bias uh, toward having a favoritism towards uh, African-Americans, which mm-hmm. was was very interesting. And so I began to wonder what were the the experiences that I were having that was actually favoring now my, my, my privilege towards my people. Mm-hmm. And so it was really, really interesting. I tell anybody to take the test a number of times. Give yourself a, a, yeah. a baseline and then see time and time right. again do you – fall along the same uh, yeah. the same patterns. So it's really interesting that you say we, we wake up biased every day, and that bias, particularly for darker-skinned African-Americans and darker-skinned African-American males, mm-hmm. right, tends to skew that you are a criminal. Mm-hmm. It was very interesting. I was standing in line at Trader Joe's, one of my favorite places, and uh, I had just come from the gym. Mm-hmm. So go to the gym. My hat's turned back, right? Um, I've got my tattoo, you know, People don't know if they do know. I've got my tattoos out. Mm-hmm. And there was a woman uh, in the line who just kind of gave me this up and down. Mm-hmm. Right? And mm-hmm. I was holding my, you know, <laughs> I was holding Your my groceries. <laughs> right? I was, I'm holding my groceries. Yeah. Right? And so she's standing, and you've been to Trader Joe's. Mm-hmm. She's standing there. There's easy for me to be able to put these down. You've got to, but never said anything, right? Mm-hmm. Ne- never. One of my former students walked by. Mm-hmm. And she's like, hey, Dr. Corporal, how you doing? She, yeah, exactly. She turned around and get. Would you like to put your food right here? All of a sudden, I was a. All of a sudden, I was a different person. Yep. And so it it, it is very interesting to see that the, these perceptions. So you, that's politics of respectability. That's poli- politics. Yeah. Of respectability. Of she, she didn't respect you in the way that you were presenting yourself. Exactly. And in order for you to earn her respect, you had to put on this air of. Uh, value and work right and 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 that's the that's problematic because Mm -hmm. you're as a as a public defender public defender i don't know why i can't talk today is that you're having to find some respectability for your clients as you present them Mm -hmm. and you're losing people who Mm -hmm. understand this who have understand this politics of respectability because they're being excluded from juries right so it's a whole system of things that play out that are putting people of color and particularly men in jail yeah you know and And, and it's sorry it's important to note that african-american women um is one of the largest rising prison populations right now as well exactly um so the problem is across the board and you know it's when we think about the most – one of the most important days in somebody's life is when they go to trial if they're in, involved in the criminal justice right. system during that journey. And literally you know, 12 members 
can decide the fate of this person's life. But we as a society have invested zero resources in preparing us for this responsibility, Mm -hmm. have invested zero time in having conversations or teaching uh, this important civic duty. And that's really contributing to the failures of our juries, right? One of the ways that we're trying to help that with the juror project is we've created a jury duty unit plan for high school civic teachers to use to teach their students about jury duty, to teach them about jury selection so that when they become adults and they get summoned, they're excited, they know what to expect, and they know how to go serve and make us a, a safer city. I, I love that because it, it promotes that, like you said, that joy and excitement. Mm-hmm. I want to do my civic duty, yeah, and I need to understand why. Right. You know, Instead of getting out of, I don't want to do this, going back one second, you know, till we talk about this implicit bias to what happened over the weekend mm. in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, shout out to my frat brother, a uh, good man of Omega, was arrested yep. uh, for sitting in the Starbucks. Mm-hmm. When you saw that and being in your various roles, how did that mm-hmm. make you feel? <clears throat> I was frustrated. Um, frustrated that assumptions were made about these brothers. Right. Assumptions were, you know, conclusions were made um, and responses by the police department was very disappointing. The fact that the manager made this call in the first place is, is, is an issue of itself. Um, but, you know, I think the police officers could have responded differently and been like, wait, why did you call us? <laughs> exactly. Like, no, nah, you need to, you know, and, and then say this isn't this isn't an appropriate reason to call us. Like they haven't done anything wrong. And so I think there's two teachable moments. One is for that particular manager. And I know Starbucks as an organization is planning on May 29th, closing 8,000 stores to do, I think some maybe racial bias training or workshops. And I appreciate the gesture. And, um, you know, I think Starbucks is being very intentional to demonstrate. This is something that they realize they probably need to have a conversation about right. it because it's not just this store. There was another incident um, where a young black guy was trying to use the restroom before he made a purchase. Exactly. They and didn't the give him the code. Exactly. So I saw that video as well. So he up in front of the bathroom. Right. Young white guy walks out. He makes some small talk and says, hey, did you buy anything yet? He's like, no, I just went to go use the restroom. Well, how did you use the restroom? Well, they gave me the code. But you haven't bought anything. So then he goes up there with the white right, guy. Right. He's like, how come you gave him the code but you didn't give me the code? And then the manager, whoever – yeah, I think it was the manager, was like – you have to get out the store. This is a private business. You're no longer welcome here. Not addressing the issue, issue. and saying, damn, you're right. And we, we see this play out so many times, Will. Mm-hmm. You know, you've seen the video with the uh, white men walking down the street with the AR-15 mm-hmm. and then the brother walking down the street and two, totally, two totally different responses. Right. Um, how often do you see cases like this mm-hmm. where you have to represent somebody who's, who – has had to deal with someone, and the law is not on their side. When you say the law is not on their side. So the, the police were called, yeah. um, charges were filed, and yeah. now they're in court. Yeah. Um, you know, the majority of the cases that I have seen in, in, in the changing ways of the, my five years of practice, I will say the implementation of body cameras have changed police practices significantly Right. in the sense that, I mean, anybody's behavior is going to change when they know they're being watched, <laughs> with, with the exception of a few officers who are still resorting to old tactics that we've seen in other jurisdictions, either covering up 
their body camera or still planting drugs on people and then hitting the button, not remembering that it actually <laughs> records 30 seconds prior. Right. You know, this is a case I'm talking about in Maryland where the where the officer was seen essentially planting drugs on this individual. Um, but as it relates to police conduct and interaction with the community, I think it has changed with the consent decree of requiring police officers to wear body cameras. It has been a useful tool for me to call out police officers when I can catch them in a bold-faced lie on the stand. Right. And it's a very useful tool for me as a public defender because we can make suppression arguments so much more sound when we have concrete evidence. Right. I'm not saying that we shouldn't trust the words of our police officers. I'm saying good, that there are police good. officers that we should not be trusting. Right, and that could be a whole other show, Will, that yeah. I would love to have you on to, to really talk about – the impact of policing and, mm-hmm. and and the training that police officers go through, their mindset and their heart sets. Yep. You know, um, I grew up and just one. You know, let me make sure I do this. You listen to the What's the Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corpru, talking to my man Will Snowden, CEO, executive director of the Jura Project. If you've been listening, you've been hearing a great show just about why you need to be on a jury, the excitement behind it. Implicit bias, how so many of our people of color are being put behind bars uh, and not being represented or not having the opportunities to tell their stories. Just It's just been an interesting show. But to think about what moves you to continue to do this work because it's tough mm-hmm. work, Will. Yeah, it, it certainly is. Um, let's see. What keeps you, your you will? Know, uh, you can't walk into a courtroom and not – and see what I see and not be offended. And I feel that I have been very privileged to um, grow advocacy skills that can be used for good, that I can fight for people that need me to fight for them, and that it's it's my responsibility to give people, poor people in New Orleans – um, what my boss likes to call the Cadillac defense, right? Okay. Million-dollar right. representation. Right. Um, because at the end of the day, we are not having conversations about poverty and the link between poverty and crime. Too often we are treating the symptoms of poverty and the the response of the criminal justice system is not how we cure the issues of poverty in our communities. What keeps me going is small victories. Um, if if you ever get to go to my office at the public defender office, on my wall I have pictures of me and my clients. Right. And they all have different stories. And what's very refreshing for me is to be reminded of the very small impact I've been able to have mm-hmm. on individuals' lives. That's a revolution right there. It's it's you know my dad taught uh, Milwaukee pu- taught math in Milwaukee public schools for 30 years. And part of my childhood was just being out in Milwaukee at the grocery store and him running into students. Hey, Mr. Snowden. Yeah, you know? no doubt. And it's no just doubt. a great feeling that my dad was able to see his his students now being adults. And it's, it's I'm starting to get into that cycle where my dad would come visit. We went to Wendy's and pulled up, and one of the uh, cashiers was a former client of mine. And for me to be able to see the impact that I've had on some of the the beautiful people of New Orleans – Giving them, getting them back to freedom, right? Getting them back to the world is, is very, very inspiring for me, and it's a reminder that the work I'm doing is not in vain. And although, as a public defender, we experience loss more than we do victory, 
I know that those small wins are very important wins because I know the collateral, the positive consequences that will happen from somebody being back in their their children's lives or being back at their job. And the impact of that cannot just be limited to the individual. And so I love being reminded on how I have been able to have some of an impact on the people that I represent. You know, freedom, we don't, when we hear the word freedom, you know, we don't really talk about freedom in the sense of what it looks like today. When we talk about freedom, oftentimes it's in the narrative of, of slavery trying to obtain, uh, slaves trying to obtain freedom. When we talk, you know, in the very beginning, we talked about how our criminal justice system um, is the 21st century representation. There, there's still that slavery element. Right, exactly. And freedom is what our clients are trying to get. And keep. And keep. And understanding that I am not the type of public defender that thinks all my clients are innocent. Right. I'm perfectly comfortable knowing that I represent guilty people. I don't care if you're innocent or guilty. I defend the person, not the crime. Right. And I think about people mm. in my family who have come into contact with the criminal justice system. They are not worthy. They don't deserve to be in prison for the rest of their lives. They have made some bad decisions, some their own, some being products of pressures that were put upon them that they didn't have control over. We need to have an honest conversation about what role our criminal justice system should be playing in our society. And that, that's what I was thinking about as, as you were talking is that what, what is the purpose? And often we talk about rehabilitation. Right. But we know. In theory. In theory. Right. Yeah. But we know that once you enter the justice system, the criminal cycle. justice it is a vicious cycle. And mm-hmm. it, it is a vicious money-making cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so go ahead. Where is the evidence <laughs> that demonstrates locking people up keeps us safer? Where is the evidence that mandatory minimums keep us safer? Where is the evidence that our current criminal justice system and the way that it's been operating for the last century, where's the evidence that it works? There isn't any evidence, and we have been blindly subscribing to this idea that the way our criminal justice system has been working is actually keeping us safer when we know that it's not. And we have been criminalizing behaviors that should never be criminalized. No. Never. And we're enforcing these laws in a discriminatory fashion. Right. Exactly. So the obvious question is how do we shift? Is there a shift? Mm-hmm. How do we change? What's the revolution in that? So, you know, I, I specifically focus on juries because I am – I have an unbridled faith in the good of humanity. And I know that the people – once we become educated about how our system is failing and we're presented with an opportunity on how to you know, be involved in improving our criminal justice system, that's something that we all can get behind. Right. And too often people are so divorced from the criminal justice system because they say, that's not me, that's not my family. And I, I, I don't or have Or I've never been involved in it, so I don't – It's not my problem. It's not my problem. But when we talk about wanting to live in a safe New Orleans, we can talk about having policies that actually promote safety in our city. If locking people up actually worked – Knowing that we are the prison capital of the world, we should be the safest state in this country. <laughs> so where is the evidence? Will, you're killing it, brother. There is no evidence that our current system is, is working with our desired 
uh, desired result of safety. And so when we think about as jurors, when we come into that courtroom or when we are, have the mindset that, oh, I'm a plumber, I can't involve, I can't be, I can't improve the criminal justice system because that's not my world, or I'm a substitute teacher, or I'm a DJ, I don't have anything to do with the criminal justice system, understand that when you do get that letter in the mail, this is your opportunity. Right. Right. And understand that your two-week sacrifice literally could be saving someone decades in prison. Understand that. We all have a unique, valuable experience that is worthy of being in that room, and the criminal justice system, the way that it's operating, is designed to remove some of these perspectives, right. and that is not making us safer. No. Right? With the increase in diversity, there's an increase in fairness, and that's what we're trying and to we know that. And, and we know that. We know that from a business perspective, yeah. corporations that are more diverse and more, co- more inclusive are more successful. Right. We know the benefits of diversity in a, in, a, in a corporate boardroom. We know the benefits of diversity in the college classroom. And for the sake of the fairness of our criminal justice system, we need to be talking about the diversity of our deliberations room with our juries. Right. Well, one or two more questions. Yeah. And, and one of them has to deal with you. One of the things is uh, <clears throat> some tips and strategies. So I'll, I'll go to the tips and strategies first. Mm-hmm. If by chance somebody happens to go out today and they get entangled in the justice system, what should they do? Um, well, from the very beginning, you know, they should exercise their constitutional rights. Um, they should demand to have an attorney. That's the very first thing. You should tell police officers, I want an attorney. And I, I say that because you can be innocent. You can be guilty. You can be somewhere in between. The, when, you, when the officers get their, their eyes on you, they're trying to close a case. Right. And and some Think officers about that. they are trying to close a case. And some officers unfortunately, not all. Some officers and some prosecutors unfortunately are too focused on closing a case instead of solving a crime. And there have been tremendous amount of cases where people have uh voluntarily cooperated with the police because they say, "Well, you know, I'm innocent. I don't I don't have anything to hide, so there's nothing wrong with me, you know, participating in this investigation." But unfortunately, there is there are too many cases of innocent people who had that same mindset that were convicted, sent to prison, and then later exonerated. Right. So our constitutional rights were created for a reason to protect us from the government. So the first thing you get you get in touch with the criminal justice system. You have conversations with police officers. They approach you. You ask for your attorney. Right. You'd be very clear about demanding your attorney. Oh, well, we just have a couple questions for you. You're not under arrest. You're not a suspect. Well, if I wasn't under arrest or I wasn't a suspect, why are you talking to me? Right. And why do you have a problem with talking to me with my lawyer? Right. Because we don't know the intentions of some police officers. Some may just be trying to get some information from you. But I have seen too many times where people voluntarily um, think that they're not they, – they, they're, they're led on the impression that they're not a suspect or a person of interest. They haven't exercised their constitutional rights, and that later ends up winding them in a situation they never should have been in the first right. place. I want people to understand what you just said because the, the most prolific part of that statement was – People are trying to close a case right. from the beginning. I'm trying right. to close a case. Right. And most often trying to close a case is I'm trying to find a crime and put someone away. Right. And knowing this – and that's why I asked that question because what has to happen? People need to – because there are people – I, I wouldn't have known that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. PhD mm-hmm. wouldn't have known that. You know, I'd have been like, I haven't done anything. Let me cooperate with you. Mm-hmm. No, I, I know I'm calling Michelle Craig. Yeah, <laughs> my people. Um, last question because the show we're about to close it out. What's the healthiest version of you look like? Quickly. 
the healthiest version of me, I think, is <clears throat> spending quality time with people that I love. Yeah. And and having time with and the people that I love can be family, it can be my girlfriend, it can be my clients. You just right? hurt a lot of people, man. You just hurt you, you just hurt a lot of people by saying that. Shout out to your girl. Yes. <laughs> um but you know, I come from good stock, right? I love my family. Uh, they have taught me a tremendous amount of lessons, and I think being involved with my family and also constantly being learning, constantly having my nose in the book, is going to be able to lead me to my best and most healthy self. Yeah, no doubt. You guys have been listening to one of the most thought-provoking shows that we've had with my man, Executive Director of the Jury Project, Will Snowden, man. Brother, you have dropped it today. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. No, no doubt, no doubt. This is the What's Your Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corpru. You know you can catch us every week at 3 p.m. here on at WBOK, 1230 a.m. with my people, Rachel Graham, and the man behind the wheels of steel, Jazz. Go ahead, Will. And check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We can find us at at Juror Project. You can go to the website www.thejuraproject.org. Gotcha. We'll see you next week, everybody. It's the What's Your Revolution show.